Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode number 60 of the John Riley Project. It's Sunday, June 30th, 2019. And we're broadcasting, as we always do, from beautiful Poway, California, the city in the country. It's a fabulous summer day here in Poway. Um, just had some opportunities to be out in our backyard, enjoying our barbecue. Uh, once the sun sets a little bit and it cools off, I'm going to try to jump in the water and enjoy some time in our backyard pool. So it's summertime and we're getting close to Independence Day. And as you know, that's my favorite holiday. Of course, this is a podcast that's all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So the day of the Declaration of Independence definitely has to be our favorite holiday. That's July 4th. So that's coming up, um, I think, on Thursday. So, hey, it's summertime. It's holiday time. Loving it. And my goodness, we're right at the halfway point of the year, 20, 2019, and time is flying. But today what we're going to do is we're going to have our Democratic presidential debate postgame show. So, you know, we, maybe you watched the debates. They were Wednesday and Thursday of last night, and I had watched the, the events. I was live tweeting them. If you want to see my comments, you can follow my Twitter handle at John Riley Poway. But I had some fun with that. You know, just getting a little snarky as we always do on Twitter and enjoyed the debates. I just love the debates. It just it's like I said before, it's like a sporting event. You know, there's teams, there's opponents, there are good and evil characters, there are underdogs and favorites, there's drama. Um, people get into grudge mode, you know, like Yankees, Red Sox, people face off, people are big fans of certain political candidates. So I, I just think the whole process is wonderful. And I enjoy following it in general, but debates specifically. So we uh, covered the debates Wednesday, Thursday. I took a couple of days off and now I'm back here getting this podcast up for you, sharing my thoughts. Going into the debates, I was thinking, what do I really want to see from these candidates? And you know, this is the first debate of many. So I'm looking for candidates that, number one, are likable, you know, that that have the ability to appeal to voters. You know, political nerds like myself will break down policy. But for the average voter, it's just a question if you like them or not. Do you trust them or not? Are they authentic or not? So are these candidates likable was a big thing I was looking for in this debate. The second thing I was looking for is, are these candidates going to be able to deliver on a brand message? What are these candidates going to be known for? Because in this debate, we had two nights. Each night had 10 candidates. It was spread out over two hours, 120 minutes. So if you do the, the math at the simplistic level, that's 12 minutes a candidate. But once you remove commercials, remove time for the moderators, some of these candidates only got five or six minutes. So when you have such a limited amount of time, how can you be really impactful? Not necessarily with a zinger, but more to the point of how do you define your candidacy? What is your brand message? What makes you special? What makes you unique? What is the takeaway that a voter can leave the debate with to really understand the candidate and understand what they're all about. So I was really looking for branding. And then also I'm looking for leadership qualities. Are they calm under pressure? And then certainly amongst Democrats are these candidates that can go on stage and go toe to toe with President Trump. So we're looking at some of those things going into the debate. But like I said, they only get a few minutes. And really, the long form interview format is so superior. If you haven't had a chance to do it, I invite you to check out the interview with Democratic candidate Andrew Yang. He did a wonderful two-hour-long sit-down conversation on the Rubin Report. I know he's done similar ones on Joe Rogan. If you have the time and the opportunity to do that, you're going to learn so much more about the candidate. It's so much more informative than a couple of sound bites on a national debate stage. In fact, that's what we did here in Poway, Rancho Bernardo, when we started this podcast in September of last year. We made this an opportunity for political candidates running for a Poway mayor, Poway city council, and Poway school board to join me in a sit-down, long-form conversation. 
the average discussion went an hour and a half, which is wonderful. And we had some candidates that went over three hours, Christopher Olps and John Carson, unbelievable conversations. I'm going to continue to do that in the fall of 2020 for our local races. But for the presidential races, I encourage you to get out and try to find those opportunities and listen to it in podcast form when you're out walking the dog, when you're driving to work, because I think you're going to learn a great deal more. So what are some thoughts? I think the most glaring thing that stood out to me is is this notion of authoritarianism. Um, Now, it's hard (laughs) to outdo Trump on the notion of being an authoritarian. I mean, he's the tops on that scale. But if you look at this democratic debate, you saw the policies that were being put forward were for more and more arbitrary state power. We were seeing more illiberal, frankly, illiberal top-down policy solutions, and frankly, an exercise of massive government power that goes beyond the scope of the Constitution. So, I mean, I criticize Trump about this all the time and the Republicans, but we really saw it from the Democrats as well. And we'll share some thoughts about that as we go through this. Um, And I'm going to break down each of the candidates. We'll go through in quick hitting fashion. I'll give you my letter grade, some comments and some memorable quotes. But, you know, I want to just tee it up with a few other comments. It was amazing to me that there was really little to zero conversation on education. In fact, I don't think there was any question about it. And this is a democratic debate and no one's asking about education. I mean, sure, there's comments about, you know, school loans, college. But what about K through 12? I mean, this is really right in the wheelhouse of most Democratic candidate platforms. So I'm surprised it wasn't discussed more. And the same with foreign policy. We heard very little about foreign policy in these debates, with the exception of Tulsi Gabbard, which really she really put that issue forward. And we'll talk about that. Um, But, you know, it's funny, you go into this debate and what do people really want? And I think the average person expects it to be like a WWE smackdown. You know, they're looking for someone to have the knockout punch to take down a candidate. And really, we're so early in this process. Think about where we were in 2015, the year before the 2016 um, election. Many of those candidates that were at the top of the polls ended up dropping out. I mean, Jeb Bush, he was gone. Donald Trump, when he first put his foot in the in the water, he was in the low single digit percentage. I mean, so the whole Republican field changed dramatically. And even in 2008, Hillary Clinton was the strong favorite, and then she was surpassed by Barack Obama. So I think for a lot of these candidates, what their strategy should be is to be solid, to deliver on the things I talked about, likability, branding, presidential calmness under pressure. But you don't necessarily have to go all or nothing. You don't have to go for that knockout punch because if you come up short, if you have a seriously embarrassing moment, well, that becomes one reason for them to winnow down the field and and those candidates could find themselves on the outside looking in. So for them, for these candidates, for the most part, it's about not making any unforced errors. Um, And so I'm going to go through and I'm going to give each of these candidates a grade and just keep in mind what my grade is based on. The, my grade is not based on how much I like them. It's not based on my how much they align with my own point of view. I'm thinking about in terms of what does that candidate need to accomplish that night? And did they accomplish their goals? And we're looking at things like their style, their energy, their likability. We're looking at but their ability to deliver on a brand message. We're looking at how much substance do they have, grasp of policy. So at that level, this is what I'm looking for in these candidates. Are they credible? Do they have substance? Are they likable? Do they look like good leaders? And those are the grades that I'm going to assign. So let's go through the first debate. This was on Wednesday. And this debate, it's funny, it was like a random draw. But basically, it turned out to be Elizabeth Warren, and then nine other people. Um, the, and those nine, I mean, we're going to go through a lot of them are good candidates, but they're not at the ultimate top tier. We saw more of those in the second night. So in my opinion, on the first night, Julian Castro, I give him a strong A. He got a grade of an A. Showed great leadership. He was relatable. He was bold. He knew about policy. 
we get a sense that this is a man that really has substance. He's a Latino governor of a major city in in Texas, or he, he formerly was. He's a former cabinet member for Barack Obama. So this guy is, you know, he's he's got credentials. He's got gravitas. Um, that was very memorable. Um, and I think some of his mem- uh, moments that I really liked, I, kn- I liked how he talked about reproductive rights, but said it as reproductive justice. And I thought that was a good line. For me, it just evoked the memories of the Justice League, you know, with a cartoon with Superman and Wonder Woman and Batman and Robin and and Aquaman. That was on that that cartoon as well. But I just like that notion of reproductive justice uh, because I think that makes a great deal of sense. And I think that's consistent with a lot of democratic messaging where they're talking a lot about social justice and you're seeing less conversation about necessarily, well, there's still a good conversation about rights, but I think justice is playing a greater role in the vocabulary amongst the Democrats. So I like how he framed that. I also liked his back and forth with Beto on immigration policy. And Castro was putting forward a policy to make illegal immigration decriminalized, which I thought was a very bold move. I think it makes a lot of sense for him as a, as a Texas mayor, as a Latino. I was proud of him for really being that bold to do that. So you can tell that he has a great grasp of policy. So Julian Castro, definitely an A. Amy Klobuchar, I give her an A minus. Now, Klobuchar is the senator from Minnesota. She did what I think she she set out to do and largely delivered on the main things I mentioned, you know, brand message, likability, trust. I mean, she was solid. She was strong. She looks like a very dependable leader, someone you can trust. She went hard after Trump, which I thought was great. She probably went after Trump more so than a lot of the other candidates on the stage. She stood very strongly for women and for reproductive rights, and she had a a couple of moments on those particular points. She had a fun quote about all foam and no beer, and that was kind of a rip at Trump because Trump, of course, when he ran in 2016, he said, I'm going to make the drug prices come down so fast, it's going to make your head spin. And what has happened in Trump's presidency? Drug prices have gone up. And and in fact, you see a lot more of being the government being in bed with big pharma. So I thought that was a great line by Klobuchar to, to zing Trump on that point. And then she also joked and said that, you know, we don't need foreign policy in a bathrobe, which is essentially ripping on Trump for his foreign policy messages while he's on Twitter. And I'm thinking foreign policy in a bathrobe. And I just have this image of, you know, the dude abides, you know, Big Lebowski. And it just made me laugh when I heard her say that. But I, I like what Klobuchar did. I think she was solid. Elizabeth Warren. She went into this a strong favorite and she delivered. I have her as an A minus. You think of her, her brand. She's very progressive. She's very anti-corporation. So she definitely came through on those points. She did have a line that I took great objection to. She said, the economy is doing great for a thinner and thinner number of people at the top. Well, that's not true at all. What's happening is, is, is the middle class getting smaller to a degree? It is. But that's because more people are going up. So we're seeing more people move up the economic ladder. And that's making the category of the rich or the high income. They're growing. So when she says it's for a thinner and thinner number of people at the top, well, I'm sorry that the number of the people at the top is growing. And I think that needs to be acknowledged because it's always positioned as doom and gloom for the middle class. Well, heck, some people are doing very well and they're moving up to the upper middle class and into the lower tiers of what many would consider to be wealthy. Um, And I I mentioned before, Elizabeth Warren is not my favorite candidate for many of these reasons, that she is just so anti-free market, anti-entrepreneur, anti-business. And the whole you did not build that speech is something I took great objection to. And I mentioned that in the preview of the Democratic debates. I encourage you to go back and, and check out that podcast that I recorded earlier last week. Okay, Tulsi Gabbard. I give her a a letter grade B. And we knew coming in that she was the anti-war candidate. And I I thought she was a pleasant surprise because for most people, they don't know who she is. But she was very bold. She was, you know, we talk about hashtag be braver. She was absolutely brave when she came out and really attacked the 
not just the Republicans, but also the Democrats on the foreign policy with all of these insane wars that are going on halfway around the world. And I'll just deliver one of her quotes that I thought was really, really good. She said, we have to bring our troops home from Afghanistan. We are in a place in Afghanistan where we have lost so many lives. We spent so much money, money that's coming out of every one of our pockets and should be going into communities here at home. Meeting the needs of the people at home. We are no better off in Afghanistan today than when this war began. So bravo, Tulsi Gabbard. I love that. And so going into this debate and, and on day number one, she was really the one I was most interested in seeing how she did. Of course, I'm always rooting for some of these underdogs to rise up because I like the, the drama, the competitive nature of these debates. So I thought she really did well. Then there's Bill de Blasio. And... Bill de Blasio, of course, is the mayor of New York City. This guy is a hardcore progressive, sometimes a bit of a joke, in my opinion. Um, He got into this. He got into the debates. I was surprised he did with such little support when he launched his campaign. But somehow he was able to work his way on stage. He comes across to me as very anti-corporation. And he's definitely for the working people. He's definitely for this whole notion of wealth redistribution and lots of free stuff. Um, Some of his policies in New York City I've taken great objection to, like the notion of charging landlords for empty, for vacancies in their buildings and their commercial property to me is nuts. Um, De Blasio, um, in my opinion, is not a very serious candidate for president. But there were a few things that he said that I took note of, some that were positive and some that were negative. But let's talk about the negative one first. He said, this is Bill de Blasio, we are supposed to break up big corporations when they're not serving democracy. And I heard that and I was like, no, 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 no. What are you doing here? That is not at all right because corporations are not supposed to serve democracy. That's not what they're about. Corporations are private entities. Corporations are meant to serve their customers. Corporations are meant to serve their shareholders, of course. Corporations, to a degree, are meant to serve their employees because they have those relationships. But corporations are not um, beholden to democracy. Um, It's not as if a vote of the people can change the policy of a corporation, nor should it. So I just thought that was a very strong, and I talked about this sort of authoritarian command control, top-down policy that we saw from a lot of these Democrats that go way beyond the concept of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, So in my opinion, when you have such a policy where there are such strong rules on corporations, that just invites more corruption, more bribery, so rules can be manipulated and changed, because that's what we have now. So I I took objection to that. There was another part that... um, de Blasio talked about, and it was in regard to the father and daughter that had drowned in the Rio Grande River. It was an awful image of a, of a family trying to, to immigrate to the United States. And, he, and de Blasio said, rightfully so, I like this quote, that is not America, that is not our values. And like, bravo, you know, like, what are our values in the United States? Well, we can go back and certainly with the Statue of Liberty, bring us your poor and huddled masses, welcoming of immigrants. We could talk about what I talk about all the time, our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. When you see people simply trying to immigrate and dying in their quest, that's a violation of those rights. And at the same time, we can even talk about uh, you know, Ronald Reagan's comment of the shining city on the hill. People want to come to this particular nation, and we make it so complicated and, and, and difficult that people end up dying trying to get in. So it doesn't represent our values, and I give him credit for that. And here's another particular comment that I thought was interesting. And this is from, again, from Bill de Blasio, hardcore anti-corporate person. He says, for all the American citizens out there who feel you're falling behind or feel the American dreams not working for you, the immigrants didn't do that to you. The big corporations did that to you. The 1% did that to you. Okay, let's break this down. Of course, the immigrations haven't done that. The immigrants haven't done that. For the most part, the immigrants are taking low-skilled jobs in the United States that typically Americans are not filling. 
generally speaking. So for the most part, immigrants are not displacing American workers. There are some exceptions, but generally speaking, he's right on that point. But the strife that a lot of Americans are feeling in, let's say, the middle class, the lower middle class and the poor, is that because of what corporations are doing to them? Or is it really about the policies that government is setting up that create this system? So we have we have a program now where the government is creating um, is implementing tariffs that are damaging this economy, harming businesses. They help some few businesses that are in selective manufacturing industries, but as tariffs always do, they benefit the few at the expense of the many. We can go down a whole laundry uh, list of issues where the government policies create these perverse incentives. And sometimes those corporations will react just as those incentives are set up. So did corporations do this to harm the middle class? I don't believe so. I think the root of this, the source of the river, always goes back to the government policy. So what de Blasio is doing here is he's creating a very classic democratic or really even more of a classic Marxist angle here of class warfare about positioning the the rich against the masses, the bourgeoisie against the proletariat. That's what he's pushing forward, that kind of a message. Now, as a candidate, I see why they do that. They're trying to divide and conquer. But I'm looking for presidents that are going to unify America and bring people together. De Blasio is definitely not that kind of a guy. All right, what else? Some of the other candidates, we can go down the list. Uh, John Delaney, I gave him a B minus. He's a nice guy. He's relatable. He's an entrepreneur, took over the family business. There's a really good interview segment of him on The View with Joy Behar and Whoopi Goldberg and uh, Megan McCain. And I thought that's nice. It was about 10 or 15 minutes long. I encourage you to check it out. But he just seems like a, a very nice man. But I can't picture him up on stage going head to head with Trump. The poor guy would get steamrolled. Then there's Jay Inslee, the governor of of Washington. I gave him a C plus. He was on the fringe of the stage, didn't get a lot of questions. He's all about climate change. That's his brand. He delivered on that. But for the most part, he was one of the lesser significant players on the stage. Then there's Cory Booker. I gave him a grade C, but and that's what I published when I immediately put up my grades. But really, in retrospect, I, I probably did him a disservice. He might have been a B minus or a B. I, I, Cory Booker, of course, the rising star, he, he's the senator from New Jersey, the former mayor of Newark, New Jersey. I, I thought he was solid. I thought he made some plays there. Sometimes I wonder, though, how much substance is really there. Sometimes I wonder if he's sort of at that Peter principle where he kind of gets promoted to the highest level till he reaches his maximum competence. Um, I mean, he's a very likable person. He did well on that. But from a branding perspective, I'm not sure what he really stands for. Uh, you know, from a, in terms of a, yeah, from a brand message perspective. He had an interesting line, and, and both Cory Booker and Andrew Yang said this, and I, this is totally false, that Amazon paid zero dollars in taxes uh, the previous year. And that's just wrong. It needs to be qualified. Did Amazon pay zero dollars in federal corporate income tax? Yeah. But still, Amazon paid over $1 billion with a B in taxes last year for state taxes, local taxes, international taxes, and a laundry list of other you know, payroll taxes. And we can go down the list. Amazon paid over a $1 billion. So this notion that people say Amazon paid nothing is just so wrong. But even then, the way the tax code is set up, and there are, the Trump tax plan that was put forward, there are some good parts to it. There are some bad parts to it. The part that I thought was really good is that it incentivized the way you know, the way you can spend money on capital investments and you can take on that whole expense in year one rather than amortizing it or depreciating it over a period of time. That encouraged more investment back into the company. And after all, isn't that what Democrats have been demanding? They've, Democrats have often said that corporations have all this cash. They're sitting on it. They're hoarding it. They want them to reinvest it back in the company. That's what they did. And those monies that are spent reinvesting 
go-to employees. In some cases, they go to Amazon employees. Amazon's raised their minimum wage to $15 an hour. But at the same time, they're also investing in technology and equipment. That money is spent with vendors. And then that money goes to the employees of those vendors that provide that equipment, those facilities, the software, and all the other things that are necessary to run Amazon's business. So in my opinion... The fact that they are encouraged to reinvest their profits should be a good thing from a leftist, democratic, progressive perspective. But instead, Amazon gets beat up for it all the time. And that always bugs me. Um, And then Booker was talking about his concern over corporate consolidation. Well, I mean, come on. We need to be concerned with government consolidation. I mean, look at the public school system, K through 12, 90 percent of the students that go to K through 12 education are going to school in a government run public school. That's the kind of consolidation we need to break up. That's where we need to provide more competition, more innovation and really take our education system to a new level. But of course, they barely even talked about education in the debate. So this notion of you hear from Elizabeth Warren, too, about wanting to break up companies. That's not the problem, folks. We need to break up parts of the government, in my opinion. The government is the one that has too much power, too much authority to manipulate the economy. And when they have that much power, they don't always manage the economy with an even hand. They end up, because of the big money, they get up the influencing from lobbyists and others, and they end up distorting and tilting and warping the playing field so special friends and special interests get special favors. And that's why we have to fight back over all of this authority going to government. Again, I think this has been a common theme in the Democratic debate. Okay, so that was Cory Booker. Then there's Beto O'Rourke. Of course, Beto O'Rourke, the former congressman from the state of Texas, the former senatorial candidate in Texas that almost beat Ted Cruz. You know, that's another guy. There's not a lot of there there. There's not a lot of substance. It just seems like he delivers these platitudes. (coughs) Excuse me. I need to install a cough button here in the JRP podcast studio. (laughs) Um, Just seemed like a lot of platitudes, a lot of sort of empty rhetoric. And, um, you know, he's a he's a young he's got a great deal of energy. I, I like the rhythm and the way he delivers his message. I got it. I like that. But still, it just feels very shallow. That's what I walked away from uh, with his performance. I gave him a letter grade C. That might have been generous. Um, Tim Ryan, and he is the congressman from Ohio. He com- he competed actually for the Speaker of the House against Pelosi a, f- a few years back. I gave him a letter grade F. I thought his performance was very very disappointing, and he got into that battle with Tulsi Gabbard, and he was calling for more and more drone attacks and more and more warfare in the Middle East. But I did like the fact that he really is standing up for the working class, but I still felt he was greatly out of his realm, that he was really a minor league player on that stage. That was my sense. But I did like the fact that he was calling out the Democratic Party for being a party of the elites, a party of the two coasts, and he believe that the party needs to get back to being the party for the working man to represent really a lot of those Midwestern states. And he's right on that point. I mean, that's after all, really how Trump swung the election in 2016. The Democrats, if they're smart, are going to have to reclaim Michigan, Wisconsin, Iowa, Pennsylvania. So I thought he had a good message there. But overall, I thought he was definitely out of his league. You know, he was uh, too far ahead of his skis. We can come up with any number of of uh, analogies. Oh, and then other, another one. This is a huge letter grade F, and that goes to MSNBC. I mean, this whole the sound engineers with the with the hot mics and and they had to shut down the debate for a period and go to an emergency break. That was really really. Uh, unprofessional. I was shocked that MSNBC did that. And they had problems on day two as well, which I'll share. But I gave them a letter grade F that night. So that was Wednesday. Two hours of fun. I'm sitting in my office, big screen, and uh, just taking it all in, live tweeting as I went. But now let's look at day two. And before I get into day two, I, I should have said this in the very beginning. 
you might say, well, who am I to give letter grades? And I must be some Republican to be criticizing these Democrats. Well, I'm not a Republican, not at all. Um, I am definitely not a supporter of President Trump. I am not a Republican. I am also not a Democrat. I'm a registered independent, no party preference. I am very much a liberty guy, you know, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. I'm very much for individual rights, live and let live kind of policies, socially tolerant. I'm, I'm big on fiscal responsibility, balanced budgets, paying down debt, low taxes. That's kind of my perspective on things. Um, and so that's how that's how you can maybe interpret some of my comments as I go through each of these candidates. All right. So debate number two, uh, Thursday night. This was the the more marquee event, you know, based on the random draw, there were more big names in this race or in this debate. I was personally really rooting for Andrew Yang and Mayor Pete Buttigieg. These are two candidates that I saw early on that I thought were authentic, creative, smart, innovative, had new ideas for uh, for both of them. There are a lot of policies they put forward that I strongly oppose, but even though I'm not a Democrat, I, there's certain Democrats I'd like to see do well. I like to see some of these underdogs rise up. So those are the two going in that I was rooting for. So at the top of the list, I think this is a consensus pick with the A grade. Many people thought she won the debate on Thursday. Many thought she was the strongest candidate of the two nights. And that was California Senator Kamala Harris. Uh, the, the tough prosecutors, you know, we talk about being braver. This woman has serious cojones. She is tough as a prosecutor. She will not back down. Lots of gravitas. You could see her on stage with President Trump really just, you know, punching that guy in the nose rhetorically. Um, so I, I think she had a great night. You know, her engagement with Biden, I thought was great. I, th- I thought that on the on the issues, she showed great leadership, great poise. I thought she showed leadership qualities. Her brand message definitely is of a prosecutor, which I have a problem with, by the way. I, again, I think presidential candidates need to be uniters. Prosecutors tend to be dividers. So I'm concerned with that from that perspective. But one of the things, and again, I said from the very from the very top of this podcast, I was very concerned that the Democratic policy proposals were very heavy-handed, very authoritarian. And it's interesting because we hear Democrats constantly say, we need to go back to democracy. We need to have a democratic rule. We have to support democracy. Democracy is fading away in America. We hear that all the time. So what does Kamala um, Harris do when she was asked what her policies would be in year one. She said she put forward her agenda and asked Congress to bring those bills forward for her signature. And if they failed to do so, she would take immediate executive action. Well, I'm sorry. That is a direct affront to democracy. We have three branches of government and they're supposed to be co-equal branches, the legislative, the executive and the judicial. When the executive branch is doing these executive orders, you know, they had, like President Obama said, I have a pen and a phone and I'm going to do things without congressional authority. That may sound great to you if it's your person in the White House. But when it's not your person, then it completely blows up the concept of democracy. So if the legislature can't pass the bills, that's where the Democratic vote occurs. So we have to encourage Congress to do its job, but we can't threaten them and say, if you don't do it, I'm just going to sign an executive order. Because when the legislative branch and the executive branch function as one, then you no longer have a president. You have a king. You have a dictator. And this is something that I think we have to be very, very concerned with. This is, again, the heavy-handed, anti-constitutional uh, vibe coming from these Democratic candidates really, really was concerning to me. Again, Trump is awful on that point, too. So I hear you. Uh, but we need to have a return to proper constitutional governance in, in Washington, D.C., in my opinion. Okay, then there's Mayor Pete Buttigieg. I gave him an A minus. Again, I told you, my grades are based on how well they performed within the context of the Democratic debate. They're not grades based on how much I like them. 
if, if frankly, if I were to give grades up based on how much I like them, all these candidates would be pleading with me to grade on the curve <laughs> because I, I'm not a fan of a lot of them. Um, but I, I think that many of them did good things in their in their opportunities. Kamala Harris was fantastic. She delivered. Pete Buttigieg, I gave him an A minus. His you know his brand is that he's young. I think he's 37. He's an Afghan war vet. He's a a Harvard educated Rhodes scholar. He's smart. He's very thoughtful, and I like that. He's not a loose cannon. He is authentic, he's relatable, and of course, he's openly gay, which is a big deal uh, for people in the LGBTQ community. They're like, hey, one of our guys. Um, the fact that he's gay, to me, you know, that's fine. Good for him. I'll live and let live. I'm happy you found someone that you love and you're married. I'm proud of you for that, but it's a shame that has to really be an issue in this campaign, but it is. Um, at any rate, you know, bravo. Uh, the fact that he's gay is definitely part of his brand message. Um, and actually, he plays it very well, and we'll, we'll talk about some of that. Uh, but the, he had a ton of great lines. And again, I like this guy a lot. I think he's – if he ended up being president, even though he has a lot of policies I don't agree with, I would still be OK with it um, because there are so many good things that he would bring to the table. And one of his lines that I thought was wonderful, yes, it needs to be more affordable to go to college in this country. It also needs to be more affordable in this country to not go to college. Yes, exactly. Because we have such an emphasis on having everyone wants to go to college and we're trying to come up with money to send people to college. And it seems that the effort is always about how much can we subsidize other people to go to college. But you know what? Not everyone wants to go to college. A lot of people want to pursue careers that don't necessarily require a college degree. Some people don't like school, don't want to go to school. So when you have this system where a lot of these candidates are are proposing erasing college debt or free tuition, what you end up doing is you end up penalizing people that don't go to college. And this could be a plumber, an electrician. It could be a chef. It could be an auto mechanic. There's a, it could be a, an administrative worker in a, in a company. There's a whole number of jobs that are out there that don't necessarily require college degrees, but all of those people pay taxes. They pay federal tax, they pay state tax. And those are the taxes that are used to fund universities, especially state level universities. So when you have these concepts of free college canceling student debt, you end up penalizing people that don't go to college. They end up having to pay tax. So people that are going to college and in the future will become upper middle class or in the future become rich if they're not already rich now, they're the ones getting the break off the backs of the non-college educated people. So I thought it was wonderful that he was saying we got to make it affordable for people to not go to college. That makes a lot of sense. And in my opinion, and I don't know if Mayor Pete was necessarily coming from this perspective, the focus on the whole notion of college, we have to be thinking of ways to make college less expensive, not in terms of subsidizing it, but in terms of bringing tuition prices down. And I think there are a lot of things that we can do, you know, through transparent pricing and incentive structures and a lot of other policy positions that we can put forward to encourage lower priced higher education costs. So, you know, again, his, his, uh, his notion of making it more affordable to go to college and to not go to college. Wonderful quote. Here's a couple of others. Tariffs are taxes and Americans are going to pay an average of $80 that's a typo. I think he said $800. $800 more a year because of these tariffs. And he's right. Tariffs are taxes. Mayor Pete, you're absolutely right. And tariffs penalize hardworking people. In, in, in fact, tariffs penalize the most poor amongst us because they're a tax on imported goods. And sometimes people say, oh, yeah, we need these tariffs to protect American workers. But what you end up doing is protecting the very few at the expense of the very many. So now imported products are now suddenly more expensive. And now a consumer, maybe a minimum wage worker, a person on a modest income, now has to choose between a more expensive imported product or a more expensive domestic product. And that just takes money right out of their pocket. So right on target there, Mayor Pete. I love that. 
And here's another one. It was, he was asked, as all the candidates were asked, what's the first big project you want to do in your first year? And he said, we, we've got to fix democracy before it's too late. Get that right. And climate, immigration, taxes, and every other issue gets better. So I love that as well. He wants to fundamentally um, reinvent or maybe reform the system. And again, here we have a notion of calling out for this greater good of democracy, while other candidates are really trying to blow away democracy and have more command and control authoritarian policies. I like this. I think if what he's what he's really saying, and, and this kind of gets to the question, what do you mean by more democracy? Because on one level, of course, democracy means everybody votes. But in a broader context, that means we've got a a free press. We have a process of lawmaking that isn't so greatly influenced, uh, which has a lot less money in politics. And I agree with trying to address those issues. I have different approach to them, but I think he's right. He wants to really challenge more fundamental issues rather than trying to attack a policy here or a policy there, because in many cases, the system is broken and he's trying to fix that. So I, I thought that was terrific. Um, and then this was the money line and the whole and the whole um, debate from Mayor Pete. And this was the notion of the hypocrisy of the Republican Party and religion. And he said, for a party that associates itself with Christianity to say it is okay to suggest that God would smile on the division of families at the hands of federal agents, you know, of course, on the border, that God would condone putting children in cages has lost all claim over the use of religious language. And I just thought that was a freaking home run. Um, Love that. You know, we hear, you know, from a Christian perspective, love thy neighbor, um, turn the other cheek. And we're seeing policies right now at the border where families are separated, children are in cages, and we have terrible living conditions. And it's a concentration camp. I can't believe I'm saying this, but Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you're right. Absolutely right. So I love how he is not running away from the concept of religion. Most Democratic candidates will not touch religion with a 10-foot pole. And for a good reason, I think a lot of Democrats are for, in fact, all Democrats are for a separation of church and state. But they generally don't like to jump into that that sandbox because that's usually where the Republicans are. Mayor Pete is going in that sandbox, and he is actually using that as a way to differentiate himself, use it as a way to embrace these biblical values of tolerance, of love, of kindness, and using that as a way to separate himself from some of the other Democratic candidates and have it as a um, as a stick to beat Republicans with. And he's been doing that with v- Vice President Pence in Indiana, and it's really clever what he's doing. And this is why I think he's a smart candidate. He's an innovative candidate. And I like him a lot. I mean, some of his policies I have problems with, but I like him. Um, and I'm hoping that he has great success through this process. And he did. He got, he got very positive reviews from his performance. And his closing line was wonderful, too. He said, I want to be able to look back on these years and say, my generation delivered climate solutions, racial equality, and an end to endless war. Help me deliver that new generation to Washington before it's too late. So that's beautiful. So he's differentiating himself as the younger candidate, as representative of a new generation. He's tackling major issues, climate change, race, and war. And he, as a veteran, has a a unique perspective on war. I think uh, Tulsi Gabbard is the only other one, I think, that was a veteran on that stage although they were on separate nights. And then I love the urgency. Help me deliver that new generation to Washington before it's too late. And that was beautiful. So Mayor Pete, I gave him an A minus. I mean, and I had to give an A minus because I thought Kamala Harris was just so darn strong. So Pete had to be at least a notch or a half a notch below her. And that's why I gave him an A minus. Then there's Bernie Sanders, good old Bernie, Bernie the socialist. Bernie, I give you a letter B. Um, I thought he did what you expect Bernie to do. You know, he talked about all of the uh, social democracy or democratic socialism, excuse me, all the policies we've heard from him in 2016. Uh, Like I said before, I have great respect for Bernie Sanders. 
I don't necessarily like his policies, but the man is just so damn consistent. He doesn't waver. He sticks to his guns. And I really, really like that in him. Um, But what we saw here, you would hope that his message would not just be the same old thing. I mean, he evolved it a little bit, but for the most part, it was the same message. I thought he was solid. He didn't. He didn't have a great night. There were moments of the evening where he sort of disappeared a bit on the stage. But overall, I thought he was solid. Now, the one line that he repeatedly uses, this is one I I have a big problem with. He said, we need to make health care. Well, he says health care is a human right. We need to make health care a right. Well, first of all, health care is not a right. But I think when you declare something to be a right, and it puts a duty on someone else, then it shouldn't be a right in the first place. It's a, it's a right that places a burden on someone else, a burden on someone else to pay for it, a burden on someone else to provide that service. I think that's wrong. Now, do we need to reform our, our healthcare system? Yeah. Do we need to uh, increase access to healthcare? Yes. Do we make, need to make healthcare more affordable? Yes. I mean, we can go down the line. Yes, yes, yes. But if we have inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that doesn't mean you can violate other people's rights to get what you want. And that's the whole notion of making healthcare a right, I think, is is a problem. I think that is a direct affront to our inalienable rights and our Declaration of Independence. And this is going to be a major philosophical battle. And what you're seeing is amongst Republicans, a lot of them are kind of sliding into that spot, as they usually do. Um, They're moving more in that direction. And there's very few people that are really standing up for individual rights. I didn't expect to see that amongst the Democrats. Um, And what else did Bernie said? He he claimed that wages have been stagnated, and that's false. I'll include a link in my show notes here, but inflation-adjusted hourly compensation in the United States is up 60% since the 1970s. Now, would we like those wages to go up a lot faster? Of course we would. Typically, again, it's government policies that get in the way and prevent that from happening. Um, but what, what he said is that we have stagnant wages. It's not true. Inflation-adjusted wages are up 60% since the 1970s. Um, And then we heard the whole piece about canceling student debt. And he claims there can be no freedom without economic freedom. Well, it's ridiculous to bring up the notion of freedom to cancel student debt when you're essentially going to pass the bill off to other people and make them pay for it. What about their freedom? What about the freedom of the person that gets stuck with the bill? So that's not right. I mean, again, that's a violation of our inalienable rights. So, and then Bernie goes on to say, um, you know, he's decrying the big money interests of Wall Street, while at the same time demanding trillions and trillions of dollars of big money to come to Washington, D.C. So he just wants to redirect the flow. Rather than it going to Wall Street, he wants to see it go to the government. And he's as much of a big money guy as, the, as any of them. So I... I just have so many problems with Bernie. Now, I have a lot of friends that love Bernie, and they are sticking with him through this process. They think he's going to be able to pull it out, but he's already fading a little bit in the polls. I don't know if he moved a little since the debate. Biden came down a couple of notches. Maybe Bernie rose a little bit. I'm not sure. Can Bernie win in a debate like this? I don't know. Can he win this race? I'm suspicious. I think we're going to see a younger person come forward, in my opinion. Um, who's next on the list? Kirsten Gillibrand. I gave her a C plus. She's the senator from New York. She's feisty. You know, she was constantly jumping in and grabbing the microphone. You know, she had to take control because a lot of people don't know who she is. But she really has no brand message. There, what is she memorable for? It's what are her policies that she stands strong on? None of those stuck with me. So I see her as a, as a senator, as someone that was, was battling and fighting in the debate. But she was interrupting so much that I thought it made her unlikable. And I thought that was a problem for her. Uh, so it's a delicate balance in these debates because you want to show authority. A lot of times you should be 
it's if you, you it's okay to go a little bit over time just to kind of push the limit and make sure you get your message in. I think that's good, um, but sometimes the constant interruptions get to be a real drag and sometimes can damage the likability of that candidate. And who was it that did that in 2016? Was that John Kasich, I think, was that candidate or was it someone else? Um, so I'm hoping Gillibrand is able to more, more clearly define her brand in the next set of debates. Then there's Eric Swalwell. He's the congressman from California. His whole brand message is as the anti-gun guy. Um, but you didn't really hear a lot of that until near the very end. And he seemed like a candidate, a bit like Tim Ryan, sort of looked to be a little bit out of his league. He made a couple of good points. I gave him a C plus. Um, Michael Bennett, I gave him a C, but now he's, I should have probably been a little more generous with him. I maybe should have given him about a B minus or a B. He, um, he was complimentary of a lot of the other candidates. And sometimes I wonder if his real angle is to maybe become a cabinet member on the next administration. You know, he's the senator from Colorado. And one of the things I thought he liked is he talked about when they were asking all the candidates if they were for single-payer health care, and he was saying, you know, wait a minute, we we should, instead of having this massive transformation of our health care system, let's just at least do public option. Let's put the, the, the government health care program in the exchanges so people can buy it. And I thought that makes a great deal more sense, in my opinion. And in fact, Mayor Pete talks about that as sort of a glide path as part of a transition plan to single payer. And I think that's a more pragmatic approach to it. And I thought Bennett did a good job of explaining it. And you know, he's a former superintendent of the schools in, in Denver, if I recall. So... I thought he, you know, I gave him a C after the debate, but then thinking about it, I, th- I should have been a little better with him. I should have given him probably a B or a B minus. Then there's Vice President Uncle Joe Biden. And oh my, the, he just got smoked. And you were so, everyone was so interested in learning what Biden was going to do because you know, he's such a huge target for the progressives. Everyone is now really framing Biden as the corporate candidate, the moderate, the centrist. And you really hear that from the more progressive uh, supporters, uh, you know, supporters of Warren and Sanders and a few other candidates are really putting pressure on Biden. You see this on social media constantly. So Biden is representative of that old guard as well. And he has a great deal of support from older voters. And it's largely because he was vice president and he was vice president of Barack Obama, who was a president that a lot of people liked. And so you find a lot of older people are leaning for Biden. You find a lot of African-Americans are leaning for Biden, all because of the connection with President Obama. But he just looked like he was beyond his prime. I mean, he got run over by Kamala Harris. He didn't really stand up for President Obama until later in, in the second half of the debate. In fact, I remember there was one exchange in that first half of the debate where he referred to Obama as, I think it was that guy. I to me, he needs to embrace Obama and make his candidacy largely about him, similar to what George H.W. Bush did when he ran in 88. You know, he was embracing Reagan, a continuation of Reagan policies. That's a smart strategy for a vice president of a well-liked president. We didn't see enough of that. And then there were times where he was getting near or at the time limit for exchange and he would cut himself off at the time limit. He did that three times. It was almost like you sense that he didn't have much more to offer and he had to hit the eject button just to escape an awkward moment. I thought that was weak. I didn't think it showed strong leadership at all. And then even there was a moment where the you know the the moderators ask the candidates raise your hand if blah 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 and Biden is there kind of like half raising with his finger up sort of looking around like gauging if he should raise his hand or not. And I was thinking, my goodness. So he had a terrible night. I gave him a D plus. Um, then the next candidate is Andrew Yang. I told you going in, I was rooting for this guy. I, I, I saw his interview on the Rubin Report. I thought it was a great interview. Andrew Yang has a lot of policy positions I like. Um, of course, his brand is largely connected to universal basic income, which I don't like. In fact, I did a whole podcast on that. Um, 
Andrew Yang just simply didn't take charge. He, you barely heard from him. And then when the moment he was asked, he was like a deer in the headlights. He was stunned. So he was clearly nervous on that stage. You know, and if you think about it, this guy is not a politician and doesn't have the same kind of swagger as someone like Trump uh, did as a non-politician. So he was probably intimidated on that stage, in my opinion. But the, the, here, this is a bit of a tangent, but one of the comments you heard after the debates or people were up in arms, Andrew Yang, he didn't wear a tie. And people, some people were legitimately upset by this. They thought it was disrespectful. You know, in a utopian world, appearances wouldn't matter, right? We would be judging people on the policies they bring forward. But let's be real. In today's world, first impressions count and appearances count. And so it's important for those candidates to present themselves properly. And so you have to analyze what they wear. It's part of it. As much as we may not want to embrace it, it is. I mean, the 1960 debates showed us, the Kennedy-Nixon debate showed us that the visual presentation is crucial in these debate performances. I loved that Yang didn't wear a tie. For so many reasons. Number one, it immediately differentiated him. It separated him in a good way. He looked more relatable. He looked like he was a person of a, of a newer generation. He was more relaxed, I thought. That at least that's how it appeared. Um, and it's interesting, too. If you see Andrew Yang, he basically has a uniform. Every time you see him, he wears a dark blue solid navy colored suit and a blue long sleeve dress shirt without a tie. And I think he always wears black shoes. And it's the same uniform everywhere. And that he didn't change for the debate. And I think that was good. That was authentic. Because if he suddenly looked different than what we normally see him as, I think that would have looked, um, it would have looked fake. It would have looked inauthentic. So I, th- I love that he stuck to it and he didn't bend under that pressure to wear a tie. But it's interesting. It's, it's, in my opinion, this is all good branding. This is good marketing. And a lot of other candidates, a lot of other business leaders have uniforms. I mean, President Trump basically has a uniform. You ever, most of the time you see him, he's wearing the same kind of dark colored navy suit. He'll always have a white shirt and usually a red tie, sometimes a blue tie, occasionally a gold tie. And that's like his standard uniform, unless he's outdoors or at a golf course, but when he is on a stage, when he is at a rally, he's always wearing basically a uniform. And I think that's smart of Trump to do that. And there's other people that do it as well. You remember Apple founder, Apple CEO, Steve Jobs, he always kind of had a uniform too. He always wore that, um, it was like a black long sleeve shirt with sort of a low profile turtleneck and jeans. That was his look and it was consistent whenever he made his big presentations for new product rollouts. And I think as much as I like the fact this branding idea and and having a more or less a uniform when you go in front of an audience like that, I think that's good. But it's something that, you know, to be honest, it's hard for women to do that because women are judged differently on appearance and it's not right. It's not fair, but they are. And a woman can't get away with wearing the same thing every time. Um, It's just a sad truth. And Hillary, to a degree, tried to do that and it just didn't work for her. Um, So if you look at even Mayor Pete, Mayor Pete has a uniform. If you ever notice whenever he's interviewed, whenever he's giving a town hall, whenever he is on the campaign trail, he always wears, I assume it's a suit, but it's just the pants only, and a white long sleeve shirt with a tie. And sometimes his sleeves are rolled up, sometimes not. And you never see him wear a, wear a jacket, but he did in the debate. And I think that was smart on his part. He You had to wear a jacket at a debate. Otherwise, you don't look like you have enough substance, enough command of the stage. So he did wear the jacket. He looked terrific. But it was interesting, if you notice, if you look closely, Mayor Pete, you know, he's only like 37 years old, he was not fully shaven. So he had the five o'clock shadow. And I think, in my opinion, I'm guessing that that was by design, that it was meant to make him look a little more older, a little more presidential, a little more mature. 
I think that was by design. But you know, even Mayor Pete has a uniform. But I give credit to Andrew Yang for not wearing a tie and sticking to it. I think that was good. And heck, it was another something to talk about Yang afterwards. And I think that's positive. Then there was Marianne Williamson, the spiritual advisor of Oprah Winfrey. And she actually did better than I thought. I gave her an incomplete grade as well. Uh, But she did have a really good line. I thought this was a good one. We have a sickness care system in America rather than a health care system. Generally speaking, she's right. But we're also seeing a little bit of way way some of these healthcare companies are repositioning themselves. Some are really embracing having a true healthy care, health care system rather than a sickness care. And I give credit to Kaiser Permanente. My, my wife works there, but Kaiser Permanente has a whole campaign about Thrive. That's their slogan. And they are working with patients to encourage healthy eating and exercise and weight loss and a lot of other things to live a healthy lifestyle. And they, they have a lot of programs for that. I'm sure there are other healthcare providers that do the same. So Marianne Williamson, she said, we have a sickness care system in America. She's right, but it is nice and it is special to see some healthcare providers that really challenge that idea. And then John Hickenlooper, um, he is the current or the former governor of Colorado. I also gave him an incomplete grade. We didn't hear a lot from him. He was also challenged with a question about embracing of socialist ideas. And, and he, he was much more of a moderate, didn't want to go as far as, as Elizabeth Warren, as Bernie Sanders in implementing some of the social democracy policies that we see in Scandinavia and other parts of Europe. And he was just resistant to embrace the idea of the word socialism. But I was disappointed that he couldn't at least embrace capitalism because capitalism has has successfully brought so many people out of poverty and the evidence is overwhelming. And so it's a shame that with there is so much pressure in the world of, of embracing of socialism amongst Democrats that capitalism now is almost like a bad word and it can't be embraced. And, and he failed to do that. I was disappointed. And then finally, letter grade F. Once again, two nights in a row, MSNBC, uh, the, the first of all, the hosts, they didn't take control. The candidates were chirping at each other. And you remember the line from Kamala Harris calling it a food fight. And it was like that, where these candidates, they start talking. And when they start talking, they don't want to be the one to back down. So they just keep talking, even while everyone else is talking. By the way, that takes a great skill to do that. I know when I'm in that situation, it's extremely uncomfortable to be talking while other people are talking and to see which one's going to back down first. But the moderators, I thought, should have done a better job of policing that. And what they did, unfortunately, is they actually cut off the microphones of Marion Williamson and Andrew Yang for a portion of that debate. They tried to interject them multiple times, and their microphones simply were not working. So the sound engineers at MSNBC failed a second night in a row. And it's, of course, the microphones don't fail for Bernie Sanders or for Elizabeth Warren, they fail, or, or for Joe Biden, they fail for the candidates on the very edge of the stage, the fringe candidates. So that makes you wonder, is that by design as well? I don't know, conspiracy theory. <laughs> so what are the things that I would like to see is I would have, again, I told you, I, I'm a more of a liberty guy. I'm more of a free market guy. I'm talking about capitalism. I'm a big supporter of, as long as it's not a crony version, the, the version that we have in America today where the government is distorting the rules that end up enriching certain corporations at the expense of people. I'm, and if, I'm a big free market guy. I wish we would have saw more free markets in the debate, but instead we got way, way more central planning from government, more authoritarianism. I would like to see them positioning more competition in the economy, but instead we heard more about government takeover of the economy, specifically on healthcare insurance. I would like to see more transparency in pricing, and, but instead we, we saw more effort to subsidize high prices. I think we have more transparency in prices, particularly in healthcare. We have an opportunity to drive healthcare pricing down, which should be the goal. It shouldn't be the goal to simply subsidize high prices. That's what we saw in these debates. I want to see more equality under the law, where we're all treated equal under the law. But what we heard from Democrats is they wanted to stick it to certain people. 
Uh, they want to increase taxes on some people, but not on others. That's not equality under the law. I don't think that's right. I, we saw a great deal of class warfare in those debates. I want to see a more peaceful foreign policy. But instead, we got very few comments about foreign policy. And Joe Biden voted for the Iraq war, for goodness sake. We even saw Tim Ryan, when he got into the exchange with Tulsi Gabbard, you know, demanding more drones, more warfare in the Middle East. That's disappointing. We need to learn from this. Um, Sanders is... is been speaking out a little bit more on this. I can't recall if he mentioned anything in the debates. Tulsi Gabbard, to her credit, did. But I want to see more of that from the Democrats. But sometimes they're not embracing that hashtag be braver. Sometimes they try to toe the line because they don't want to look weak on terrorism. And that ends up, in my opinion, damaging them in front of a great deal of progressives that want to say a lot of this military adventurism scale back. I'd like to see more candidates embracing our individual rights, our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But instead, we saw more, not individual rights, more collective rights, rights for groups, and often at the expense of the individual. That's disappointing. So I don't expect a lot of these things to change. I think we get into the next debates, we're going to see more of it. I think the language is going to get more amplified. We'll see. So when are the next debates? They're going to be on July 30th and 31st. They're going to be on CNN. So are they going to reduce the field? That's a great question. I know they set criteria based on how you're doing in the polls, something to do with donations. I don't know if it's a dollar amount or a number of donor amount. So we'll see if the field gets smaller. I'm hoping that it doesn't get smaller. This was one of my big criticisms in the 2016 cycle is that the media and the party kept trying to cut the debate stage down and basically eliminate candidates before the voters got a chance to vote on the candidates. They were intentionally manipulating the process. So those candidates that get great coverage by the media, they're the ones that have much higher numbers. And then they end up getting the advantage of media coverage, and then they don't have to suffer like some of the lesser candidates by getting bumped off the stage because they don't meet certain criteria. So I'm very, very curious to see if some of these candidates we saw last week, if they're going to continue to be on the stage next time. I hope they all will be on the stage again. And then we always do on on these podcasts, we always have a closing quote, and this is a, a fun debate quote, and I think this is a good one to share. And this is in regards to a lot of people that are, challenging Joe Biden. They're saying he's past his prime. Some people are saying the same thing of Bernie Sanders, that they're older. And we have a new younger candidates, younger candidates from a new generation. And of course, that brings up to mind that classic line from Ronald Reagan back in the 1984 debates with Walter Mondale. And Reagan said, I will not make age an issue in this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. <laughs> Fantastic. Reagan, the performer. Reagan, the Hollywood star. Uh, uh, I, could, I should do another whole podcast on Ronald Reagan, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, but anyway, I'll save that. So this is the John Riley Project. It is Sunday, June 30th. This is episode number 60. This is our post-game show on the first round of the Democratic presidential debates. Thank you very much for watching on YouTube. Thank you very much for listening on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher. Please continue the conversation with me on social media. You can reach me on Facebook at The John Riley Project. I have a special Insiders Group Facebook page, The John Riley Project Insiders Group. Request permission to join. I'll approve you. That's a special, special smaller group where we have more intimate conversations and I share a lot of video while I'm out on the road, bonus episodes. And then you can always reach me on Instagram and on Twitter with the same handle, John Riley Poway. Thanks very much, folks. We'll see you later. Bye-bye. <laughs>